welcome to this episode of the Future Champions podcast. My name is Stuart Taylor, and in this episode, we speak to the legend, Willie Wallace. Willie Wallace is a former professional football player who represented his country, Scotland, and also played for Celtic Football Club. He was immortalised as part of the Lisbon Lions squad that went to Lisbon in Portugal and played Inter Milan in the final of the European Cup and won 2-1 to become the first British team in history to win the European Cup. He is also an inductee in the Scottish Football Hall of Fame. It was my absolute pleasure to travel to the Gold Coast and meet up with Willie Wallace at the Croatian Football Club where we watched the under-18s Brisbane Roar take on the Gold Coast Knights on a glorious Queensland day. So let's not waste any more time. Here it is, my interview with the legend Willie Wallace. Thank you so much for um, sitting down and chatting to me. I'm interested to know what your first memory of football was. Oh, I'd probably be five or six years old before uh, we were really allowed to play in a game formation at schools. Uh, that would be 1946, 47. So it's as long ago as that that uh, I was introduced to football. And you grew up in post-war Scotland in Glasgow? Yeah, what was outside, that like? about eight miles north of Glasgow in a small town with a Roman name, Kirkintilloch. And uh, football, as you can imagine, was very, very popular. It was basically the only game that we played up until the mid-50s. We started to play basketball, cricket, things like that. But soccer was the only game, or football was basically the only game they played in schools. And what led you or what drew you to football? Uh, just uh, everybody, as I said, said to you earlier, that it was the only game we had. So we played it every opportunity we had after school, uh, weekends. Uh, we then played for the school teams. We graduated to youth football, either boys' brigade or youth clubs. And then we went into what they called first-class juvenile, which is under-21 football. I was playing that level of football at 15, 16 years old. So when did you identify that you were any good as a footballer or when did your coaches start seeing it in you? I went with the boys' brigade to uh, the yearly camp in the summer in a place called Stonehaven near Aberdeen. And we played and the, the local council would hold competitions for all the youth teams that were in the areas, they came from all over Scotland and the local boys and we would play competition football up there. And after one of the games, an old man walked up beside me. Uh, this would be 1955, 56. And he said, where do you live? I said, why? He says, I'm from Glasgow. And he, we have a non-league football there, which is called junior football. But the seniors, the guys who don't go to the top. And he was a, a director of one of these clubs in Glasgow. Very near Ibrooks, actually, near Rangers ground. And uh, Benburb United, I think they were called, would have liked to have a trial. 
when I go back home. I said, yeah, sure. So the first Monday I was back, they play lots of games in summer nights because it's daylight to midnight. So they play a lot of football early in the early in the season. So I played, but the team they were playing was my hometown. Oh, really? The, the, yeah. So they, uh, I came back home in the bus back to where I live and everything after we, we had beaten them 3-0. So, and I finished up playing that night with Stevie Chalmers. And Stevie was the centre forward that played at Lisbon with me. Yes. And he was in the same team as I was. But he was 21. He had just come out of the, <laughs> the RAF. And I was 16, 17. And we, we met up all these years later with Celtic. But that was a sort of really an, a, a scout for that. The Ben Bob United was up in holiday near Aberdeen and watched these games and picked me out. So for those people who don't know what the boys' brigade is, because it's not something that you'd normally associate in Australian football, yes, but it was very yeah. important for Scottish football. Oh, it was. The boys' brigade, uh, the headquarters was in, were in Glasgow. If What else was the Boy Scouts? But if you weren't in one of them... He just roamed around, kids got any trouble. But when you were a member there, seven days a week, you were involved with the boys' brigade. And the football was very, very high level at that time because it was one of the ways that you could go step a step forward. And school football was very, very big as well. You played in your school, your, in your local district, then your county, and then Scotland, England, Wales, and all the schoolboy school international football as well. Which is different to Australia in the sense that club is, is the, the biggest thing. The biggest thing, and, yes. And um, school, football, not, school football, not so much, but in Scotland it was very much school football. School football from the age of 10, it was very, you didn't play against other counties or international football until you were maybe 14, 15 years old. But it was coming through the levels. If you were selected for your own district, that was the step forward. So you were playing against the better players in every county and every state so that it gave the senior clubs a look at everybody without having to pick little games to go and see so it was very well attended by all the clubs. And the club that picked me up was Stenhouse Muir. Uh, they were in the, there was only two divisions then. But they were a good club, but they didn't want to be in the top league. So they were always up the, the top of the second division, but they didn't want to get promoted because that meant uh, bankruptcy. Because they needed to buy players, pay wages that were too big, and they only attracted 2,000, 3,000 people. So these clubs all wanted to be in the top half, but not in the first two. So at the end of the season, they used to change the team and drop players, and so they didn't get the points, you know. But uh, it was a great level to play in at that time because they were all professionals, guys who had all been up the top and on the way back down. So it was a good education again, another step in the ladder. 
I was fortunate. I went through the levels. I came from junior football to second division, then into Premier League, first division, Premier League. So I did all that. I went up the ladder. I didn't go from basement to top. But you did it very quickly. I did it within two years. So you're 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 in you're a fifteen year old dreaming about football, and that's then, right. Yeah. Then within two years, you're two playing years, I'm, I'm uh-huh. playing no Wraith Rovers. Wraith Rovers. Wraith Rovers was uh, a top league team at that time, but mid to bottom, you know, they were in always surviving. Good club, nice, but there was a lot of good old players, guys who had served their time in the game, you know, professionals, and they could teach you something you, know, you there was always something to learn no matter what game you played even today i'm learning about football you know you, you mm. never know football through and through because there's so many different players playing different ways you know it's, but it was i was just fortunate enough that to be and i had uh, i was top goal scorer in scotland uh for five six years that's an incredible achievement. And even when I left Hearts, I'd scored 14 goals and I went to Celtic in the November. And at the end of that season, I was still top goal scorer at Hearts. Although I had moved on, nobody had scored more any more goals than me. <laughs> That's incredible. And you went to Hearts and uh, you have an affinity or a love for Edinburgh? Oh, loved Edinburgh, yeah. I lived... Uh, I lived in Kirkcaldy, because that's where Race Rovers play, right opposite Edinburgh, across the Firth of Forth. So it was only half an hour on the train in Edinburgh. So I stayed there for the first year of playing at Hearts, being transferred to Hearts. So I still lived with the same old landlady I had from the age of 17, 18, you know, so old Mrs. Rosebeer. And it was just like being at home, you know. She looked after me like a son. And I think that was part of all being happy where I was, you know, living away from home and things. And it worked out fine for me. I had never had any problems, you know, missing home and things like that. How old were you when you moved from home? Oh, 17, 16, 17. And then it, I, I got re-signed with Ray Throwers in a two-year contract. And I got a signing on fee of 250 quid. That was a fortune. Yeah. That was an absolute, you know, people were earning 12, 15 pounds a week at that time. And they get 250 pounds, you know, I'd mm. never seen that kind of money. Yeah. And uh, I went home, my mother banked straight away, account. You don't touch that so much in another little account that I could have pocket money. And within a year, I've, I got my driving license. I bought a car. So the money was never, ever wasted. You know, was a lot of the boys got the money and gambled it at the bookmakers or out drinking at nights and flash cars. And I was quite lucky. My mother never, ever allowed that. How is important? How important is it as an athlete going into professional sport to have an anchor in your family that gives you that Very advice? Very much important. And I had an uncle as well, my, my mother's brother. Uh, he was a Rangers supporter, by the way. You know, but 
he, he actually was the president of the Rangers Supporters Club in our town. But he was a great influence on me. He would, and it didn't matter who I played with, he, if I needed any advice, that's who I went. My father had played football and everything, but he was, if I went to him and asked him something, he said, well, what do you think? You know, I said, well, I've come to you, who do you think? Well, I don't know much about it, I'm not involved, blah, blah. But my Uncle James, he kept me in a straight and narrow. And what about the decision to move to Hearts? How did that come about? It was, I was in bed. I lived in my, as I say, in Mrs. Rosebeer's house, who was right opposite the ground in Kakori, Ray Thrower. And I was in my bed and she woke me up. She says, you've got to get over and put your blazer on. You're going to Edinburgh. I thought, this was at seven o'clock in the morning. I says, what, what's up, Ma? I used to call her Ma, you know. She says, oh, Mr. Herdman, the boss has phoned you. have got to be over there. In 10, 15 minutes, you're getting the 8 o'clock train and going to Edinburgh. So that's what I did. And when I got, the, he had a, bed, a very bad stutter, the manager. You know, and he's, by the time he told me, we'd missed the train, you know, what was going on. But he told me, I oh, we're going over there. Tarts want to talk to you. That's all he said. And I thought, well, what do they want to talk to me about? <laughs> it could only be one thing. And I spoke an hour for, it only took me an hour to decide. The wages were far different. They were top of the, you know, the top league. So it was an easy decision to say, okay, I'll go to Hearts. So then moving forward, your first game for Hearts, how how was it and how did you feel? It was right to the end of the season and I got permission to play in the last two games for Hearts because there was no chance of winning the league and there was no relegation in So I played against Dundee and one other club, Clyde I think it was, and I scored in both games. So it was a good start for me. Then the next season, we uh, first thing was went on the first overseas trip. Hearts had Scandinavian tour organised pre-season to you know get warmed up. So that was a great experience for me as well, you know something. And from there, I didn't realise how much travelling I would do in my life. You know that was the first of time, the first time ever overseas. Uh, it's is that a challenge? Is it hard to travel? Not really. Well, when you're in, living in the best hotels and best of food, and you know you don't miss out, you don't have to scrimp on how you travel and things. It's not hard, <laughs> you know. And you get a bunch of guys here with you. Usually, a squad of at least twenty-two players and staff. You soon get to you know. I uh, spent six weeks in America, about six, seven years in a row, when they opened up the New York Cup. They would have teams in New York, Chicago, different places, and you would uh, travel like they do with the baseball. You go and play three games away, three games at home, 
that was in the early 60s and that. It was brilliant. Was, was that with Hearts or Celtic? I was with Hearts, yeah. yeah. And so then how did it eventuate? Because there is some debate as to whether or not uh, Rangers wanted you or, or Celtic wanted you. Um, how did, how did well, that eventuate? Put, as I've always answered the question the same way, they never asked me. They never came and said, look, we would like to say, this was all after I'd signed with Celtic. And you know the situation, Catholic, Protestant. Yeah. Well, I'm a Protestant and I signed for Celtic, who are Catholic. I lost quite a few what I call ex-friends because on a Tuesday night we would play darts and a bit of pool at the local pub. But no drink, you know, we would maybe have a shandy or something and that was it because it was five or six players who played with other clubs or Rangers and Party Thistle all lived in town, went to school with me. So we met up on a Tuesday night, a wee social night. Because we were all single guys, you know, wasn't it? But when I signed for Celtic, it was, I signed on the Tuesday morning and the Tuesday night I went down to the pub and there was nobody there. Yeah. Because they were all Protestants and more lent towards, and even the woman who owned the pub asked me to leave. Because you signed for Celtic? Because I signed for Celtic, yeah. That, that is an amazing um, thing to contemplate if you haven't grown up in that Scottish, that particularly yeah, that, yeah. that the old firm Scottish um, Celtic V Rangers. The clubs had nothing to do with it. You know what I mean? The clubs couldn't give a damn about it, really. But they, they liked the fact that they had 60,000, 70,000 supporters. They would only support them. But they did not push this religious thing. They, they didn't get involved in it at all. There was loads of range of supporters who were good friends of mine as well and, and never lost the friendship. Still kept my friendship over. But there was a lot of them took umbrage to me saying we sell it. Did you even have to consider that as a part of your decision-making when signing for Celtic? No, and I never did in any time of football. Even when Crystal Palace came came to, to take pick me up, you know. I always went on the belief if somebody comes and asks you, it's because they want you. Not all like the fairy story of Highbrooks or Rangers interested in you. Yeah. You know, you're only interested in somebody if you make a move to to do it. You know, I don't know whether Rangers were ever interested in me or not. You know, it never ever came to sort of any making decisions about it and things like that. They were never involved in any of the moves I made. Yes, and then the opportunity to play for a team like Celtic was offered to you and you well, took it. At the time... The, the factor for me, the big factor for me, that Jock Steen had managed Hibs in Edinburgh, and I was in Edinburgh, and we had an Edinburgh select, played two games a year, played against Chelsea in one and Tottenham in the other, but they were all for hospital charities, the games. But he, Jock, became the, because he was manager, it would be Hearts 
manager one year, Hibbs next year, would be yeah. in charge of the team. And I played a couple of games under Jock and had a good association with him. What was he like as a manager? Excellent in football. There's, I would only compare him with Bill Shankly. Uh, the guy that was at Tottenham was a fantastic at that time. And Don Revy. There was a few of them. Steen was in that class, no problem. As, as, as reading the game of football, he was second to none. He could analyse the game or sit and watch the team and give you an idea how to beat them after just watching a game. He didn't profess to know whether he would... When we made decisions, when we made decisions, it was done as a team. We'd be in the, 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 the game, the, the uh, what do you call it? The players' room where they did all the tactics and everything. Everybody had their say, from goalkeeper to left winger. Everybody. He would say, this is how I look at it, this game. This is where our strengths are and where our weakness will be with this team. This is how they play. And he would do his spiel on the board and then he would say, anybody, any questions? It's funny you should mention that because I watched a old video of Jock in in his um, in his meeting with his yeah. players. And that's exactly what happened. And then someone raised their hand and said, boss, um, have you thought about this, doing that? And it it looked like it was fabricated or made up simply because it's not something I really see much of is that, yeah. that um, two-way communication. But you're yep. saying it actually was the case. Every game. That's incredible, isn't Every it? Every game. Uh, he had his ideas in football. And there was a few times we changed things because one of the pullbacks or centre-half or somebody would say, look, that exposes me a wee bit more because, you know, what's happening with this guy, what's happening here? And they would adjust things. But we generally went with his mm. ideas, his formation. And all he ever asked of anybody is give 90 minutes. If you're not having a good time, still put the, the work in and the guys around you will help you. And that, have you, you probably seen when he's, he, he'll say that, he does it and when he's doing his better tactics, no matter what's going on, if somebody's in trouble, help them. Get into an area, don't stand and watch the game because the game never stops until the ball goes out, stop for a second or two and that's it. Players think because the ball's no longer in their area that they're not involved, but they are. When we went forward, the first thing that John Clark's duty was was to get everybody as far up the park as he could without going too far and exposing things. But he was in charge. He was the man. He was the voice. Push out, back, across. And all he says, right or left. And if you were on the left, you looked. <coughs> I was telling a winger or somebody that you had to be aware of. But Jock's whole idea was he played as a unit. Goalkeeper is centre forward, but there's no difference. He's got to work. And Simpson 
was what we used to call him ABC or BBC over there. He was never off the air, you know, <laughs> looking directing. Because if it goes in, balls in the net, it's his fault. Mm-hmm. So you get yourself organised that you're not going to lose the goal because it's not going to get shot for a start. You know, you start hopefully at the base. But the whole, is, uh, I watched Bertie all talking, having a speech the other day there. There's a bit going around in Britain at the moment of the, the Lisbon lines and some of the old, what do you call it, interviews and things. And he, he said it in a nutshell. Everybody in the club, even the other 10 people who were in the squad, knew exactly what was happening. There was nobody come on the field and thought, what have I got to do? Everybody knew what each position. I mean, times I'd get on as substitute and played it right back. I think if you look at the, the game in Lisbon, we had the ball for probably 80% of the game. Which to play against an Italian side was incredible because at that time that was their game, keeping the ball. And even after Herrera said that, he said, I'm only glad we didn't have to go to a replay. Yeah. <laughs> he says, I was glad when we lost 2 1. Yeah. He says, I couldn't see us coming back the following Wednesday and, and playing because, and do you know the thing about it? We weren't really super fit or anything. We were fit. We were very fit. But it was the way we used it, the way we played, that we only used maybe a fraction of what other teams were using. So at the end of matches, we would pop a couple of goals in because we had that little bit of fitness and how to use it and how to do it. It was just a, a well-organised machine, I would say, you know, at the time. Thank you for joining me in this episode of The Gospel According to Willie Wallace. You can listen to this podcast at Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Deezer and Pocket Cast. Be sure to listen to part two of The Gospel According to Willie Wallace, which will be out soon. My name is Stuart Taylor. Stay safe. Stay safe.